You know, we don't need a trophy for, for everything we do in life. You know, sometimes we just need to be part of life and help others get the trophy, you know? And that's that's the lesson I took with me. As a matter of fact, it's how I got to Starbucks. Before I went to, uh, you know, it was a long journey of uh, talking with Howard Schultz, who was kind of the modern day founder of Starbucks. And, and I said, before I went to work, there's Howard, can I work in the company for a week? I'll work for free. And I said, you look at me, I'll look at you. And so I did that. And I worked in the trucks for a couple of days and the stores for a few days. And I worked in, in a roasting plant for a few days. And at the end of the week, fortunately, he extended an offer for me to join. And I was excited about doing it. And that's how I got to Starbucks. Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking a job at Knicks. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs, and utilized by over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Gap. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry. Welcome back to the show this week. Um, I think this week's guest is going to leave you wanting to be a better human when you get through listening to this. I know the first time I heard him, it was one of the first thoughts I had was, I want to be better myself. Our guest today is one Howard Bihar. For 21 years, he led Starbucks domestic business as president of North America and became the founding president of Starbucks International, opening the very first store outside of North America in Japan. During his tenure, he participated in the growth of a company from 28 stores to over 15,000. 28 to 15,000, um, 300 employees to three quarter of a million employees. He served in, in on the Starbucks board of directors for 12 years before retiring. He's written two books, both of which I've read. Um, it's not about the coffee, lessons on leadership from a life at Starbucks and the magic cup, a magical story about a leader, a team and putting people and values first. They are both phenomenal so I would, you know, say you, you need to get those right off the bat, but welcome and thank you for joining us, Howard. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited. I've got me a notebook, like I'm ready to take notes myself, you know? So this is my first question. A okay. lot of times our identity as, you know, what we think about ourselves and who we are early on is shaped by the people that raise us, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. So I guess my first question is, you know, childhood, growing up, what did you catch? What did you learn? What was your identity as it relates to your parents? You know, what did you learn from them? Well, both of my parents were immigrants to the United States in the early 1900s. My father was actually born in 1895, left his family as a 15-year-old and never saw him again. He was from Bulgaria and he had to make his way in the world. Can you imagine our 15-year-old kids doing that? Can't. That was those were the days, you know, those those were the times. And uh, so he ended up in Seattle and my mother ended up in Seattle a number of years later. And they ended up meeting in Seattle and getting married. And my dad worked at a place called the Pike Place Market, which at the year that it opened, 1911. And it, it was a farmer's market. Now it's a tourist destination, still somewhat of a farmer's market, but mostly a tourist destination. And he pushed a cart you know, pushing vegetables around. And that's how he earned money. And he saved his pennies, nickels and dimes. And uh, he ended up opening a small mom and pop grocery store in the north end of Seattle. And that's where I grew up was around that grocery store. You know, he was 50 when I was born. So and he retired when I was six when he was 62. So I by the time I was 12, by the time he sold the store and Anyway, and I watched him get up every morning at four o'clock in the morning, go down to Produce Row, pick up his produce and his fruit and bring it back to the store, clean it all up, get it ready to open when he opened a store at eight o'clock. And I watched him do that every day of the week, except for Sunday. In those days, you weren't open, you know, on Sundays. Sure. And 
and you were closed on uh, you closed down at six o'clock at night and he would come home and he would he would eat his dinner as fast as any human being could possibly eat his dinner. I used to remember I had got I was amazed. You could not keep up with him. He would just shovel it in and he was done and he went to his chair and he fell asleep because he was tired. Sure. You know, he was a hard, hard worker and he did that forever. And and so I watched that. I watched both my parents work really hard. And of course, they told me the lessons about the depression. I wasn't born yet, but the lessons about the depression and that stuck with certainly stuck with me. You know, they don't let you forget what, how difficult it was. And, and I watched my dad and how he treated the people that he served, those human beings we call customers. And a story that I remember from the time I was about eight or nine years old, I was uh, up by the front counter. My dad was ringing up a customer. These were in the days when it was a hand crank. On a, sure. on, like, there was no electronic cash register. It was put the numbers in, pull the crank, you know, and it would go bing, you know, like that. Right. So my dad, as I was standing, my dad said, Howard, go get me some strawberries or bananas. I can't remember which now, but and fresh fruit. And so I went back and I got a couple of baskets of strawberries or a bunch of bananas. And my dad put them in the customer's bag and the customer walked out. And, and I was old enough to recognize my father hadn't rung those up on the cash register. And I said, dad, you forgot to ring those up on the cash register. And he said, not, and he looked at me and said, Howard, not everything we do in life do we need to get paid for. And I happen to know that these people are struggling right now and they're not just our customers, but they're our friends and our neighbors. And I'm just trying to help them out. Now, I didn't realize the importance of that, you know, to much later on in life. But it has served me well. It's true. Not everything we do in life do we need to get paid for. You know, we don't need a trophy for, for everything we do in life. You know, sometimes we just need to be part of life and help others get the trophy. You know, and that's that's the lesson I took with me. As a matter of fact, it's how I got to Starbucks. Before I went to St uh, you know, it was a long journey of uh, talking with Howard Schultz, who was kind of the modern day founder of Starbucks. And, and I said before I went to work, there's Howard, can I work in the company for a week? I'll work for free. And I said, you look at me, I'll look at you. And so I did that. And I worked in the trucks for a couple of days and the stores for a few days. And I worked in, in a roasting plant for a few days. And at the end of the week, fortunately, he extended an offer for me to join. And I was excited about doing it. And that's how I got to Starbucks. Wow. Didn't need to get paid for it. I just did it. And, you know, that worked out. Sure. You know, funny thing, my first uh, head coaching job was at a small school in central uh, Mississippi. And when I went in for the interview, having never been a head coach, I knew the cards were, were stacked against me. And the last thing I told them before I walked out was, look, if you'll give me this job, I'll do it for free for a year. And if you don't like it, run me off. If you do like me, start paying me. And I was, I was sincere. Like I would have taken out a loan. Like I was ready. I wanted it. I would do anything to get it. And, you know, I, I, that's funny that you said that, um, you know, and what's, what else is, you know, what you learned at a very early age, you know, like seeing your dad put that fruit in there. I know, you know, made a huge impression because the fact that you bring that up today, but also in knowing what, you know, what your role was in Starbucks and how Starbucks grew. I know that was very instrumental in that. All right. Let me ask you this question, you know, you know, post uh, high school, you know, when you get out and go to work, you know, professional career kind of summed up before Starbucks. Uh, well, I grew up and my father retired, but I had a brother and a brother-in-law that both had furniture stores. And so from the time I was 13, I was working in those furniture stores, dusting furniture, uh, working on the trucks, helping to deliver furniture. And so I, I kind of grew up in that, you know, from the time I was 13 till time I was in my early 20s. And, and then I, I ended up going to work for a guy in Salem, Oregon. I was 21 years old and he was looking for a store manager. And I had not a lot of experience, but enough experience in the furniture business by that time to where I felt I could manage a store. Unfortunately, I had confidence in me. So I did that for a few years. And then I then I was recruited by um, a company called Levitt's Furniture, which was uh, a big box furniture retailer. And so I worked for them for about five years. And then I ended up being recruited by a company called Federated Department Stores and a startup called Gold Key, again, furniture. And, and then I got mouthy with my boss one day he used to come in every day and he'd say how 
he'd say, how you doing, dummy? And it used to make me mad. I don't want to be called a dummy. Right. And one day I got up and I said, don't ever say that to me again. Three weeks later, I was fired out looking for a job, you know. And my wife was a few months away from giving birth to a babe, our baby and our first baby. And, and I had to figure something out really quick. And I ended up going to work for a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental out of Portland, Oregon. And it's where I got my first real opportunity to really have a senior position in a company. And so I, I basically spent 25 years in the home furnishings industry. Wow. And uh, the company got sold and I ended up going to work for the guy that was the CEO of the company. And we were in that um, uh, consumer land development business and that company got in trouble and we had to sell it. But I had, I had had the opportunity to be president up the last two years before we sold it. So to have an opportunity to be president of a company uh, that was a small public company and, uh, without a college degree, which I didn't have, you know, was a big deal. And so, you know, it was, it taught me a lot. That's I got my MBA working in that company, you know, working 18 hours a day, you know, watching where all the dollars and cents went and, you know, having to manage it and, Anyway, that company also got in trouble and we had to sell it. And, and uh, you know, that's when I met Howard Schultz. So, but I'd spent my whole career basically in consumer related products or services. And yeah. I knew it and I liked it. Sure. Let me ask you this. I, I ran across this statement um, a guy made last week. And tell me, you know, what made me think about this was, you know, the the your boss, you know, saying, you know, dummy or whatever. Yeah. What about this statement? A culture of achievement will always trump a culture of intimidation. No question about it. You know, no question. There's no question. A, a culture of helping people to to be uh, better, to be better human beings, to be better professionals, and to achieve their own personal goals will help a company grow versus the opposite way around. And that, you can see those examples everywhere you go. Look at uh, Microsoft was a company of intimidation for a long time under Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And their stock didn't move. I mean, they did really well at the beginning, but it was, a, it was, uh, it was an intimidation oriented company. And finally it wasn't doing so well. And they changed the CEO and the CEO was uh, a CEO that said, empathy is the most important skill any human leader needs to have and the company turns around becomes a people-centric company uh uber was led by an autocratic leader and of course you know what happened there they had to make a change and and it wasn't doing well losing a lot of money and new guy comes in and he changes the, the how people are treating and being treated and becomes a company of achievement there's no question i mean warren buffett says it perfectly he says, he, he, he said, culture will beat strategy any day of the week. No doubt about it. And that that's in my profession, you know, in, in coaching in particular, you see it more prevalent, you know, like there's a lot of yellers, there's a lot of screamers, there's a lot of intimidation, you know, but there's also the folks out there that are very, uh, you know, very much culture related, you know, and you can, you can tell the difference. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the great examples right now that we have, you know, is Deion Sanders, you know, like Deion Sanders is creating a culture yeah. that is all about the players, you know, and it's about helping them be better humans. And, you know, he's reaping the benefits of that, no matter what people think. Yeah. All right. Next question. And this is, this is, you know, Starbucks was known kind of, you know, for their culture, you know, like that's, that culture's, you know, has been a buzzword. Let's say you were to go into any business, you know, you were you were to take over any business that wasn't doing well, and you had to establish the culture that you wanted. What's the first couple of things that you would do or install, or you know, what's the first couple of things you would do to start creating a culture that you want for that place to be successful? Well, I'll tell you what I did at Starbucks when I first joined Starbucks, and I still believe in it today, that I just went around the company and I talked to everybody in the company. I went around, I talked to the baristas, I talked to the store manager, district managers, and I asked three questions. 
What do you like about Starbucks? What don't you like star about Starbucks? What would you change about Starbucks? And after I talked to a couple hundred people, you know, and they gave me their opinion, I put it all together and I went back to the people. And I said, here's what you told me. Do you still agree with what you told me? And they agreed. And I said, okay, this is, we're going to do what you think we should do. And we're going to move the organization forward based, based on your beliefs and your thoughts and your ideas. And that's exactly what I did. And that began the journey of people being able to trust me because I asked, but then I followed up. You can't just go ask and not do anything. You got to listen to your people. They know the answers. You don't have to. I never was the answer guy. I was always a question guy. Mm. People would give me the answers. I was the alchemist. You know, I took the disparate ideas and put them together and, and, and made it work. And, and when you do that, you build trust. And trust makes the world go round. Without trust, there are no healthy families. There are no healthy relationships. There are no healthy businesses. There are no healthy football teams, right? you got to have trust. The people have to trust that you're looking out for them. And you have to trust them until they prove they're not worthy of trust. Wow. I love that. And I think, you know, tell me what you think about this. Like you build trust, you know, um, through relationships, through honesty, through lots of things. And I've often thought this, like I, I give people trust, you know, and I, and I allow I, I, but I am trustworthy and I'm going to give it to them. And it's theirs to break earn yeah. or keep but i mean i think we should give it and think that you know most people have a lot of good inside of them you give trust before you get trust you give love before you get love and, and those things they work and yeah, until somebody proves that it's not appropriate and then and that doesn't make them a bad human being but it makes for a conversation right and, no doubt. And, you know, after one, twice, you know, it's for one shame on me, twice shame on you. Right. So one thing, one thing I've learned from that and, you know, I will take our seniors every once in a while and bring them in and set them down and just say, Hey, how's it going? You know, like, (laughs) what do you like? What do you not like? You know, like, you know, like if, if we have to, we want to, we want them to take ownership, you know, we want to be a player led team, you know, like I do think you have to ask them, what do you like? What do you don't like? What would you change? Is there anything I can do to help you? You know, like, and that one of the, my favorite quotes in the book, and I've heard you say this is the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. Yep, absolutely. You know, you hire people, you recruit great players, right? Give them a a chance to show. doesn't mean you don't coach them or you don't set out expectations or you don't talk about what, what their uh, goals are and what the goals of the organization are but you give them room to show themselves. Sure. Yeah. And you give them room to fail, you know, like you give them room to and not, not overly be overly critical because I found this, you know, like with kids, if they're, if they're afraid to make a mistake, they hold themselves back. Yeah, exactly. They do because they don't want, they, you know, they know what happens when they made a mistake at home. Right. No doubt. They don't want no that experience again. And no people doubt. want to do the right things. I, In all my years, and I've been leading organizations for uh, over 60 years, I have hardly, on one hand, could count the people that were self-destructive. No right? doubt. The thousands and thousands of people. People want to perform. People want to do a good job. They just need your help sometimes. No doubt. And that's why they call you leader. You know what I mean? Like that is our job as a leader. Let me ask you this. Some of the best, some of the best leaders, you know, that you've ever been around, what were some of the commonalities, you know, as far as characteristics or behavior traits that they shared? Guardian caps are lightweight, one size fits all football helmet covers for practice. They reduce 20 to 33% of the impact depending on the speed and location. Great for the repetitive subconcussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows. Used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end of the year, Guardian caps can help protect that helmet investment. Uh, I've been around a lot of entrepreneurs, and the one word I would describe every entrepreneur, they were persistent. Mm. 
They didn't give up on their people. They didn't give up on their goals. They kept driving until they, until it was, until they, in their own mind, they said, okay, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going to move tilt to the right. But they stayed with it. They stayed with it and they stayed with their people. And when you, when you have belief, the magic of believing, you know, so to speak, you know, amazing how it makes happen. I mean, look, Colorado, yeah, football team goes from not winning a game, basically, winning one game. It's basically what he's done is bring the magic of believing. No doubt. That's what he's done. He said, I believe in you. you I hope you believe in me. A human that believes in a cause yeah. can do amazing things. Amazing things, exactly. There's no doubt about that. Well, tell me this. How, how you know, Starbucks had has turned itself into a household name, which obviously there was a time when it was not. My first question is, were, were you a coffee drinker before you joined Starbucks? Like, did you enjoy coffee just as a... Oh, I loved coffee. As a, I was a customer of Starbucks for 17 years before I joined. They never sold a coffee by the cup. They sold coffee by the pound and equipment to make coffee. So I used to have mail order coffee sent to my home from Starbucks. Wow. Yeah, so I was an avid coffee drinker before. Yes. I don't know that probably since the time I'm, I've been 21 or 22 years old. So I'm 50, I think I'm 52. I have spent 30 years every single morning of my life with coffee. You know, like yeah, it's, right. it's a relationship yeah. that I will not do without. You know what I mean? Like, me too. I go to bed at night sometimes thinking about what coffee I'm going to have in the morning. <laughs> All right, well, I'm not, my wife drinks Pepsi. She doesn't drink coffee. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, my wife was a Diet Coke drinker and we, she broke that habit and she doesn't drink coffee, but she does not know what she's missing. You know, like she's, she's going to miss out on a lot of great stuff. Well, how, how does, you know, what's a couple of things, you know, without going into great detail, how do you go from 28 stores to 15,000, you know, like what were a couple of the moments or, you know, things that had to happen to scale it like that? Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to have great people. You, it's you got you got to have people, and then you got to let them choose the broom. So that is the minute you go, you you hire one person, you're no longer in the coffee business. Now you're in the people business, and so we were in the people business. So you hire great people, then you got to give them leeway to go out and do it. But you've got to talk about what the goals are, and what our greater purpose is. Then you have to get the resources in place. You got to have good equipment, right? You got to have uh, you got to have the resources, the money to buy buy the equipment. You got to you got to have uh, in our business. You had to have good get good real estate. You had right, and you had you had to do it all. It was always in the details, and then you had to listen to your customers mm. and had to listen to your people that and they guide you, and then you got to get out of the way. Mm. That was the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I first realized that we had something big when when in Vancouver, British Columbia, we had a store on one corner and that it had a demolition clause in the lease, which means that, that the owner could kick you out at any time if they wanted to tear the building down. So I was, it was our best store. I was concerned about that. So I said to our real estate person, see if you can get the store kitty corner across the street. Well, I thought it'd take a year or so to get it. Well, she came back in six months and we had it. Now I had to make a decision. And what am I going to do? Do I open that store? What could happen to the first store? And I said, okay, let's open the second store. And the worst thing that could happen is we'll sublease the first one. So we opened the second store and we doubled the volume on the corner. Wow. That's when I knew that we had something big. And from then on, you could see, we start, we put a lot of stores very close together and it worked. And so it was those things. And, but, Primarily, people ask me, we must have had great training programs. We didn't. What we had were great expectations, right? Wow. We had we had big beliefs, and we had, we created trust, and that's what made it work. Now, there are a lot of details, you know. It's, you know, there's a lot of blocking and tackling, you know, sure. and there's a lot of X's and O's, and, but, but, you know, that's not what makes it go. Well, that's... You know, I was sitting here thinking as you did that, you know, like I retired from the state of Mississippi, moved to Nixon, Missouri, you know, three and a half years ago. And, you know, one of the first things, you know, that I had to do, get the right people on the team, set goals, 
get the yeah. resources to be successful, you know, set a high expectation, you know, like number one, I have to believe so that everybody else believes, you know, and then let, let the belief buy in, you know, and then trust people to do their jobs, you know, so it doesn't, whether you are building a football program or putting together, you know, a store to me, it takes. Exactly. Yeah. Building a family. Oh my gosh. Yes. Amen. It's the same. And it, we think it isn't, but it's the same. No doubt. Well, we go as far as, you know, and I, I'm sure some of this is in place, you know, but like with our program, we're going to have a vision. We're going to have a mission statement. We're going to have core values that we try to live by. Like we're going to set standards and it's the same thing with a family. It's the same thing with a business. And, you know, that is um, awesome. Let me ask you this, you know, you said, you said we listen, you know, like, and I know this is silly. How did you listen? Like, what do you mean? Listen, like we listen to, like, how did we, how did we listen? You ask good questions and you listen for the answer. And then you not only listen with your ears, you listen with your eyes and you listen mm. with those little antenna that you don't, that we have inside of our head. We don't recognize that they're there, but the way I would, way I would relate that to people is if you come home at night and you walk into the house, you don't have to ask your wife, how was your day? You know how our day was. Amen. She didn't have to say a word. Why? Because you're watching and those little antennae you have inside your head. It's the same thing with your players. You know when they're smoking you. You know when they give you an answer that they don't believe because they think it's the answer that you want. And you have to dig. I used to say to people, look, don't tell me what you think I, you want me to hear. Tell me what you think you don't. I don't want to hear. Tell me what what you know. What what's underneath all of that? Give me the why, not just the what. You know, and you have to dig. It, that's the only way. Yeah, I, you know, I can come in, and I know exactly what type of hug I need to give my wife because of what type of day she had. You know, like yeah, right. that is yeah. such a great example. You know, because. <laughs> body language matters so much. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, you know, in, in that, in the growth, in the, you know, in anything, you know, yeah. adversity. Yeah. So give me an example of some adversity that you ran into, you know, building, you know, the business or whatever. And how, how, how did you handle it? Well, um, the, the biggest thing when I started uh, Starbucks International, which I became the founding president of Starbucks International, I, it was the adversity that I created for myself, right? We were opening first in Japan. And in Japan, there's a lot of unwritten rules about businesses. And I started pushing back against all those. I said, this is stupid. Why are they doing that? Da, 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 da. You know, and... Uh, until one of my direct reports came to me and said, Howard, there's an old Chinese quote. And it went like this, big noise on stairs, nothing coming down. He said, get over yourself. Mm. You know, we need to we need to be the best at living up to the unwritten rules. And he was so right. And I let finally I let go. I said, OK, we're going to be better than any Japanese company at living up to the unwritten rules. And that's what we did. So I created my own adversity. And that's typically what happens. Sure. You know, we we put the we put our own rocks in the middle of the river and then and then we hit them, you know. And so it's that kind of that's where most adversity comes from. It isn't the stuff from the outside. It's the stuff that's in our head. Internal versus yeah. external. Like a lot of it is internal. A lot of it is internal. Sometimes it's external. Sure. You know, but but and but you got to be persistent. You got to work around it. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. Well, something you shared last time that I thought was interesting, and you may remember this, you may not, but you talked about a uh, a wages mistake. You know, we're like oh, increased wages. Yeah. I, tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So I got there and it was early on and we were paying minimum wage. And I thought we can't recruit good baristas at minimum wage. So I wanted to raise wages and we laid out a plan for doing it. And we had to be at least a dollar an hour over minimum wage all the time. And uh, and we ended up being more than that most of the time. But 
But I, so we put the plan in place and, and we rolled it out and I went on vacation and went on vacation. And I get this call about the middle of my vacation and my head of finance said, we got a problem. We had projected that our raises were going to cost us 1% of sales. Instead of that, they cost us 2% of sales. Mm. That was significant. We were a company losing money at that time. Sure. I said, well, what happened? So I, I said I, I said to my wife, honey, I got to go back. So I went back and we had to figure out what we'd done wrong. And we just had blown it. We had blown the planning and blown the number. But I said, we're, we can't go back. We've, we've already given, so I've got to fix it. And I had to figure out what to do to fix it. And we had to raise prices a little bit, cut costs in some other areas. But we fixed it and we stayed with it. Because in my mind, a deal is a deal. Sure. Make a commitment, that's the commitment. And so that's what we did. But, well, I thought I was going to get fired over that. <laughs> that was early on. You know, I thought Schultz was going to kick my rear end, you know. <laughs> and he did a little bit, but 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 I fixed it and, and we went on. Sure. Well, but what you also did was, you know, you built trust with the employees because you didn't take it back, you know, and you figured it out. And what are we supposed to do when and I don't blame anybody? I took the responsibility. I mean, the truth is, it was my head of finance that had made a numerical mistake. And and when Howard came and said, well, who did this? I said, me. I did this. Well, Howard, that is in today's society, that is very uncommon. You know, yeah. what's common is to throw people under the bus, you know, to try to make yourself look better. And that's not the way to the top. OK, I got a I got a I got a word for you. I need you to help me with in in the book, you know, and I, the the um, it's not about the coffee. I mean, I love it. It's I think it's it's fitting for anything. It's fitting for our football team. It's fitting. But there is a word that's used. And I'm a big word guy. I love words, man. I got a, I got a list of words in my phone every time I hear one and I got this word in there, but I'm confused on what it means. And I'm hoping you can help me. Compassionate empathy. That's compassionate emptiness. Compassionate it's emptiness. Yes. I wrote down the wrong word. Compassionate emptiness. Like what? So I got me compassion and I get empty. So I, I don't know if you're a guy like me, but typical guys, we want, we're born to solve problems. You know, we're hunters, you know what I mean? And our, when there's a problem, boom, I'm going to get in there. Give me the wrench. Give me the spirit. I'm solving this problem, right? So, you know, I'd come home. My wife would tell me about her day, and I'd immediately go into problem-solving mode. Sure. Well, why yeah, didn't you do this? You could have done that. Da, da, da. And she used to get so mad at me. And I couldn't figure out what it was until finally I realized she didn't want my opinion. She wanted my ears. She wanted me to listen and shut up. You know, so, so, and, and I found that out with my kids too. They didn't want my solutions. They wanted me to listen to them. So I was reading this book one day and here was that quote, compassion and says, What the hell does that mean? So I started reading it further up. And basically what it is, is this full of compassion, but empty of solutions. Mm. Right. Yep. Listen, but don't try to solve the problem for them. And once I began to do that, the relationship changed because now instead of giving her advice, I'd say, well, how did you feel about that? And, you know, or what can I do to help? Is there anything I can do to help you? Most of the time it was no, you know, I need to solve this myself. And that was the same with the kids. So that's where it came from, compassion and emptiness. And I have lived by that. I have it on my office wall, compassion and emptiness. Howard, we might we might have saved some marriages today yeah, exactly. Okay? because I can promise you this. I have heard my wife say you don't have to have an answer for everything. Yeah, you know, like, I'm not <laughs> telling you for an answer. I'm not telling you to solve, you know, like you don't know everything, you know, so yeah. I have heard that. And I think great advice is this, you know, ask questions, you know, like shut up and listen, you know, like shut up and listen. Just listen. Yeah. You know? but then when you do respond. Ask yeah. a question, you know, like I, I love that. And I think that is, a, you know, I think that's a great word that I'm going to add to my to my phone. And I'm actually now going to know what it means. All right. This does not surprise me, but I know this is true. You also had a habit or a hobby or whatever you want to call it of writing birthday cards and anniversary cards. OK, now you're going to blow some people's mind because I know this and I I still try to write 
handwritten notes. I try to, you know, I'm not very good at it. Okay. But I, I mean, I try, I've got the, and I write them and I have in this podcast time, I interviewed uh, not long ago, one Sherry Cole. Sherry Cole was the head basketball coach at the University of Oklahoma women's program. She's a Hall of Fame coach. She graces me with being on the podcast, and then she sends me a thank you card. And I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm like, you know, some people are just different. Tell me about your your hobby, your habit, your whatever of writing birthday cards, anniversary cards to employees. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not so good at it anymore. I got to tell you, I've so sucked into the, to the, to the uh, use of of the internet. But sure. when I was working at Starbucks. I would send every partner uh, uh, up until we had ten thousand people a birthday card and a company anniversary card, and I would write everyone. I would handwrite a note in everyone. Now, most of the people I didn't know. But, and I, I was important. You know what I've learned? We get too caught up. We think we have to have to write something brilliant. No, we don't. You could just write thinking of you, a happy birthday. You know, John, yeah. thinking of you, happy yeah. birthday. And and I got to tell you the strangest thing that there, I've been retired for 13 years and people still have kept those birthday and anniversary cards. You know how many people never get a birthday card from anybody? They never get an acknowledgement. They've worked, okay. got to work for a company for 25 years. Nobody ever says, hey, thank you for 25 years. And so I just, that was a habit I learned from somebody else. And uh, and I picked it up and I just started doing it and it made a difference. I used to take boxes of cards on airplane flights with me and I'd write the card, I'd put them in a FedEx envelope, send them back to my administrative assistant. She'd put them in the file when to send them out. Wow. And, and then when I when I no longer could do it, you know, I transferred it, handed it off to the people in the organization. But sure. it's amazing what it does. Well, I know as, you know, being the recipient of, you know, some cards from people that I would not have thought, you know, I mean, it just it makes a big difference. Like, I can't tell you exactly what Sherry Cole's card said, but I will never forget the fact that she wrote down and she sat down and wrote, wrote a card to me, you know, like. It is, it is different. And I try to do that for people in my life. You know, now I'm not, I was never writing as many as you were writing. Um, I'm not, you know, I can't do that, but this is a question. I, I it kind of, this is a question that leads me uh, from what you're talking about. Many people struggle with work-life balance, you know, like what advice could you give someone who's looking for a healthy balance between their professional and their personal life? Get over it. Don't, it's not about balance, it's about integration. Mm. It's There is no, we live a one life and it's, you know, we want to live a fulfilling life and fulfillment is not just happiness. It's not just joy. Fulfillment is also a disappointment. It's also failure. It's, it's success. It's, it's pain. It's suffering. It's sorrow. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's all sorts of things. And so life is about integration how you bring all facets of your life together. And now there are, you know, times when you spend more time at home with your kids and you're going to spend at work. That That's okay. If you're, if you're after this perfection, this, you know, an ice skater is constantly always out of balance. The best ice skater in the world is always a little bit out of balance, right? right? Tipping back and forth on that blade. And so try to integrate your life. I used to take my kids on business trips with me. So they would learn what I did. And so when I'd come home, you know, they'd say, you know, how was your meeting today? Or how was your meeting with uh, so-and-so? And we would talk about it, you know, because they knew what I was doing. So when I, you know, I was gone a lot, but I, I never, <laughs> now when I was with them, I was with them. When I you know, was at work, I was at work, but I don't, I think, you know, when your child calls, it's the middle of the day, you're in a meeting, pick up the damn phone. Right. Yeah. I'm with you. And, you know, I've, I've noticed in this profession I've been in for 30 years that the, you know, coaching can just like anything else can be very busy, you know, but the, the families that are involved in the coach's life, 
You know, when 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 the wife comes around, the kids come around, they hang out at the field house. You know, a lot of times those are going to be the ones that do have the best relationships and it turns out the best. You know, they are involved in their yeah. life. You know, they're involved. Yeah, you're, you have them involved and you're involved in theirs, too. There's there's no balance. It's sure. everybody wants it. You know, everybody wants this uh, perfection. It, it doesn't exist. Right. It I doesn't agree. exist. All right. I got two questions. I got two friends that we we uh, have a couple of friends. We call ourselves a little inner circle, you know, where we help each other grow. And I asked them for a question. And this was uh, one of them. His name's Chance Potts. This is the question. As you were growing yourself in your career and eventually Starbucks, what character trait did you possess that helped you grow to that level of success? And on the other side, what personal character trait was challenged to change or grow that might have prevented you from growing? I had a strong desire to serve other human beings mm. that seemed to be come from, like you were talking about from my family of origin sure. stuff. And I believe that every, everybody is put on this earth to serve others, right? That's our sole purpose in life. Now, you know, it's, I don't care whether you're a doctor, lawyer, football coach, basketball coach, architect, barista. There's only one reason any of us are here. That's to serve other people. And we, and when we figure out what that is and we attach to it and it changes in our lives, you know, but when we really attach to that, you don't burn out, you don't bore out, you may get tired, but you know, you're always charged because you always know where you're headed. So the thing that the, on the opposite side of that, because I didn't have a college degree, I had a tremendous amount of insecurity mm. about myself. And it took me a long time to understand that, that I just learned a different way. And when I finally got over it, I realized that I had value. And instead of that insecurity driving me, the confidence that I had of the experience that I had helped me. So, you know, it was those kind of those two things, the desire to serve others and the ability to get over my my uh, uh, my insecurity. Do you think, you know, like, because I, I see now with, you know, I, I'm a I'm a ferocious reader. I read every day of my life, you know, and I see a little bit of a trend in the business world or, you know, just in the sales world in, you know, some of these arenas where people are foregoing college and skipping the bill that comes with college and going to work, you know, because you didn't have a college degree, but, you know, gosh, the experience you had, you would not have had either, you know, like. Exactly. So it's, uh, now I wish that I, you know, I look back at my life and I said, I could have done, I could have worked harder towards that. And, but, but okay, fine. That's part of life. And you, sure. you don't, you don't get a repeat. Okay. So, you know, you don't get a repeat. Before we end today, I want to make sure I do something here. I, I always like to give uh, people my cell phone number and my email address. So my cell phone number is 206-972-7776. And my email address is hb at howardbihar.com. And I will get back to anybody that has a question. It may take me a little while, but I promise everybody, if you contact me, I'll get back to you. You know, and and you know this, our listeners don't know this, but the reason why Howard is actually here today is because I've watched a podcast that he did with John O'Leary, who wrote the book On Fire from St. Louis, Missouri, and he left his cell phone number and email, and I either called him or emailed him, and he got back to me, and I thought that was absolutely phenomenal, and one of the things in the book, one of the things that stand out to me in the book is always say yes. The answer is always yes. You know, like, you know, do more, say yes. And I thought that was awesome. I got one more question. Um, his, your, your business career spans over 50 years. What was it that you loved about work and what was it that kept you energized on a daily basis? I just, what I said before, I love people and I love to serve. And I get up in the morning thinking, but I still do. My mission in life is to nurture and inspire the human spirit of myself first and, and then for others every day. And that's how I live my life. 
And so that gets me charged up. When I'm down, I look for somebody to serve. You How know? do you do that today? In what avenues? In well, what I'm avenues? doing this a podcast. I do a lot of coaching. I'm working with a small company in Cleveland. Uh, you know, I'm 79 years old. You know, I'm not a kid anymore, but I love to help people. Wow. And I'm on a couple of small boards and, and I used to be on a lot of boards, but not anymore. But, and I just, you know, if somebody asks something of me, I'm going to try to help. Okay. Before we leave, and I want to, I want to honor your time. I know, I know you're very busy before we leave. I, I, I would like for you to share a story or two, and I'm going to lead you into the first story. Big Jim, the Steelers fan, could you could you share that story? Because I, I think that kind of sums up Starbucks in general to me. You know, like why Starbucks blew up, why Starbucks is the premier coffee spot in the world, you know, is is it's a really cool story. So Big Jim was a customer that lived across the street from one of our stores in Southern California. And he lived in a nursing home. He was, you know, he was in his 80s and uh, Big Jim was an ex-football player and he was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, right? Every day he would come into the store, he'd order the same thing. He'd order a short drip coffee and a blueberry muffin. And and they, after a while, because he'd come in the afternoon and sometimes we would run out of blueberry muffins, but after a while, the baristas would save a blueberry muffin for him. And every day for two years, Jim came in and he, you know, he wasn't a customer, he was a friend you know, of all the people working in the stores. He loved the people and the people loved him. Well, one day, Jim, no Jim. Jim doesn't show up. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. So everybody was wondering where Jim is. And so one of the baristas took the muff muffin and a cup of coffee across the street to the nursing home and walked up to the front desk and asked the receptionist, where's Jim today? And she just looked up and a tear came down her face. And she said, I hate to tell you this, but Jim passed away in his sleep last night. Well, you know, it was devastating. That barista went back to the store and told everybody. Everybody was beside themselves. I mean, they lost a really good friend and a person that they really loved. Now, you know, every time Jim came in and got that cup, the people would write something on the cup, like, Jim, we love you, Jim, the Steelers suck, or anything to make him <laughs> laugh or to make him care about. And every time he did that, he got something on the cup or on the little bag with the muffin in it. So... The day after Jim passed away, one of Jim's kids comes into the store and says to the store manager, I don't know if you know, but Jim loved you, loved all of you. And the funeral's tomorrow, and I was wondering if you could all show up. Well, you know, we couldn't close the store, but the store manager found people to relieve everybody, and they all go to the to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, mortuary where they're having a, uh, a ceremony. And as they walk in the front door, there were two big tables and on the tables was where every bag and every cup that the people had written something on. Jim had saved every one of them. Nobody knew. They were just doing fun little things, caring about Jim and making him laugh or making him feel loved. And, you know, it shows you in life, it's not all the things that you, it's not the big things you do. It's the little things you do in life to help other people have a better life. And so, you know, you got to care about the people and you got to do the help things that help people care. I think one of the things that stands out, you know, with you and with Starbucks and the story and in the book is, man, it's about the people. It's about caring about people. It's about serving others. It's about putting them first, you know, and that's pretty obvious. And I, you know, that, that stands out to me greatly. All right. One more story. And I promise I'll let you go. And this one, you uh, and you told this on the mastermind. Um, you had there was a guy who asked you early on to he wanted to set up a meeting with you and Howard Schultz, and you were trying to ah, I'll take care of this, you know. But he was insistent on asking Howard Schultz. All right. Yeah, so that's the story of Little Jim, and yeah. Little Jim was a store manager. For Starbucks, and I was there three months. And he'd call and said, "I'd like to meet with Howard Schultz." Well, I was said, "Well, what, oh, I, I can handle this." I said, "Jim, well, what is it? Maybe I can handle it for you." He said, "No, I need to meet with. I want to meet with both of you, but particularly Howard, because he'd been there. Howard, of course, had been there long before I was. And Jim had too." 
So I arranged the meeting and Jim shows up at front desk. I go get him and we go back into Howard Schultz's office and there's a love seat and Jim and I sit and Howard's on the phone and he just says, hey, wait one minute, I'll be with you. And so finally Howard got off the phone and they, Jim and Howard made some small talk because they knew each other. And, and I'm an A-type personality kind of, so I said, so Jim, what can we do for you? Well, I was kind of sorry I asked the question because Jim looked at Howard and he looked at me and I said, I need to tell you that I have AIDS and I'm dying. Now, this was early on in the AIDS epidemic. And I didn't know, we didn't know much about it, you know, and I'm sitting right next to Jim and thinking, oh God, is this, you know, just about, what is this? So, you know, I admit it, I tried to slide over a little bit, but, and, and, and he said, and Howard said, well, Jim, what can we do for you? And, and Jim said, well, I'd like to work as long as I can work. And, and, uh, you know, I remember we're in a food and beverage business. And this is a company that's losing money at the time. We're a small company. And Howard looked at him and said, Jim, you can work as long as you want to work. And when you can't work, we will pay your full salary, mm. right, until you pass away, until you're no longer with us. And, you know, remember, we're a small company losing money. Howard didn't even blink. He just did it. And then, and then Howard looked at him and said, how are you going to pay for your health care? Well, Jim said, there's a lot of hospices opening up now for people with AIDS. And, and so, you know, we're going to, I think we're going to get some help there. And Howard just looked at us, absolutely not. We will pay all your health care costs. Right now, you know, Howard was a young CEO, but that's, he didn't even blink on those things. Now you can imagine the message that that sent to me. I can do anything to help another person. And we did do that for Jim. We paid his salary. We paid his health care costs. And what do you think that said to the rest of the company and the rest of the organization? No doubt. It's, you can do anything you need to do for people. And so that's a big thing. You know, it was two things. The little things to help people, the, the little notes on the paper, and the big things to make sure you're taking care of your people. So that's it. Yeah, those are two outstanding stories. And I think sum up you know, what, what it's all about, you know, and Howard, I appreciate you taking the time today. It has been a true blessing. I know that, you know, everyone that listens is, is gonna, you know, want to be a better human and want to serve other people from, from listening to this. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thanks, John. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate you including me. Well, and to all of our listeners, man, thank you for Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of it. We just want to try to add value to, to your life if it's possible. Until next time, adios amigos.